Hi, I'm Dr. Sam Bars. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where we explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK, with a range of expert guests. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Education and Youth. The Centre for Education and Youth believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at cfey.org. Welcome to this episode of the CFEY Youth and Education podcast. This time we've got joining us Baz Ramaya, who is an associate with our policy strand. Hi, Baz. Hey, Phil. Great to be here. See you. Nice to have you with us, Baz. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been reading recently? Uh, I have got three things that I have been reading recently. Well, I've been reading quite a few things, but I've got three things that can be organised quite neatly under one sort of central theme. They're all generally about social mobility and its relationship to education in England. Uh, I've taken a kind of historical perspective, uh, looking at social mobility in education over the last 80 years of English history. Mm. So I've got three pieces. Um, the very first one is a chapter in a book called Education Policy, which is by Ian Abbott, Michael Rathbone and Philip Whitehead. I'm going to look at the first chapter of that, which is all about the immediate post-war consensus on education. I've then got another book chapter from a book called Social Mobility and Education in Britain, Research, Politics and Policy. That is by Erzabet Bacodi and John H. Goldthorpe. And I'm going to look at a specific chapter from there, which is called Education, Social Mobility, the OED Triangle. And I've got a paper as well, which is called Deflecting Privilege, Class Identity and the Intergenerational Self, which is by Sam Friedman, Dave O'Brien and Ian MacDonald. And uh, yeah, that will be my third piece that I'll be talking about. So yeah, the kind of thread running through all of these is the relationship between social mobility and education in the last half century plus of English educational history. Cool. Well, can you uh, kick us off then by telling us a bit about your first piece? So that was uh, about the post-war consensus around education, wasn't it? Yep, exactly. So the name of this chapter in the book Education Policy is called The Post-War Consensus, Education for All? Question mark. Um, the particular chapter I'm going to talk about is 1944 to 1959 in terms of where it's situated historically. And I'm particularly interested in the period just after 1944. Mm. Um, and as I say, I think this partners up really nicely with the other things I'm going to talk about in relation to social mobility, because you have this sort of period in 1944 where essentially it's the dawn of this incredibly ambitious program to reshape English society to transition from being a kind of, you know, arcane aristocracy into being a modern liberal meritocracy, which is associated with uh, high levels of social mobility. And education is seen as being like one of the main engines of achieving this. And so there's a lot of emphasis on it, on, on education policy. And by consequence, the education policy in this era is, you know, incredibly ambitious. Yeah, I was quite surprised reading through your notes on this, um, that you know, a lot of the policy is quite, uh, well, I guess you could say it was social justice oriented, which kind yeah, of the conservative much. government, particularly the conservative government, <laughs> I think was still under Churchill at that time, is quite surprising driven largely by Rab Butler, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly it. And so I, I think just to kind of like develop the historical context a little bit more mm. in which this kind of, you know, just, just before this kind of dawn age of the advancement of education for all. Uh, in the 1930s, the UK is suffering through, you know, the, the UK is essentially still like in the wake of the, um, uh, you know, the Great Wall Street crash and is still like, you know, economically, um, you know, broadly destitute in terms of like the average number of people who are in poverty. Mm. Um, and, you know, as you're coming up towards the end of the 1930s, there is building political will to change the education system, partly in response to this. So you have this sequence of reports towards the end of the 30s, essentially calling to expand access to education. But uh, then uh, a little thing called World War II happens. And oh, yeah. uh, those, uh, th those plans are sort of, you know, kind of... Uh, you know, uh, condemned to like development hell for the period of the war. Mm. But towards the end of the war, um, in fact, throughout the war, but like particularly towards the end of it, there's still a lot of talk about, uh, you know, what is the education system going to be like uh, when the war comes to an end? Um, and, you know, there's a strong sense, there's a lot of political will, both in the public and within government that, um, you know, we, ca we cannot return to the 1930s. We have to move forward. Um, and there is also equally... Uh, it's kind of similar to now in some respects, right? Like there's also a changing attitude towards what government is capable to do, is able to do, because you've just had, you know, 
uh, five, six years of like a total war economy uh, in which the state is essentially, you know, you know, uh, taken maximal authority like over the country and there's and has you know achieved these great victories abroad so the attitude to like what's the what the state can achieve is you know uh, has extended and people have more, more kind of confidence in what the state can do and also attitudes towards spending which uh, which are very different to, to what they are now in some respects in terms of the public being less concerned in, in in some ways but generally you know the idea that the government can you know borrow lots of money in this case from the american government and invest it towards improving society there's also a lot of public confidence in that so you kind of have this st the stage set in some respects for um for this transition yeah it's to... interesting that you compare it to now actually um like we have been through a big disaster but i mean certainly the way that the economy's been managed through the pandemic i think has been largely uh case of shrugging our shoulders and uh, abandoning <laughs> things to the free market is certainly the uh, the impression that I've got you know we we've been very reluctant to close any businesses or schools throughout the entire process for fear of the economy collapsing um so in, what's the what's the parallel you're drawing here just to I suppose I I, I guess the way I think about it is that it would it would be very difficult to be a, a, a you know particularly given the failures that we've seen in that approach i think it would be very difficult to be a libertarian right now right <laughs> like in the sense that you can see that um the free market will not solve like many of the problems that are most important to us just by default mm -hmm. um it either will require like you know a heavy like steer from the state or it will um you know require the state to just like take over entirely if it wants to achieve maximal efficient uh, maximal uh, delivery of like social goods mm. and that's definitely been like a noticeable kind of like difference maker between countries who've had like a very successful response to the pandemic and countries that have had a significantly less successful one mm. so there's a sort of like you know return of optimism about like what uh, centralized state power can achieve I see. um and I think I think I think those sentiments were very strong, like in the 40s, uh, mm. in terms of uh, it's it coming out of the war in the sense that I witnessed the power of the state um, very, you know, uh, strongly throughout. It's also worth emphasizing that, like, um, for those who were at home during the, the war, um, those who weren't away fighting, there were like noticeable improvements in living standards. So, um, you know. Uh, rationing by the government massively reduced malnutrition, which was a mm. huge problem throughout the 30s. Average life expectancy for non-combatants like increased throughout this entire period. There was a general sense that like you know when the state takes when the state takes over, you know our lives can get better. Mm. And you know it, that that being a kind of really central part of like why there was like the popular will to sweep out the um, Churchill government, which was more reserved in its post-war plans, mm. and replace it with the um, you know the enormously ambitious Labour government uh, under Clement Attlee. But mm. I don't, I, I, in a sense, I don't want to draw too much attention to that because it's also really important to characterise this period just after the war as being defined by what is frequently called the post-war consensus, which is the fact that there was general agreement between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party that, you know, you needed to have a really strong welfare state, that that you needed to make society like broadly more egalitarian. That, that, that was that was a kind of there was there was there was a broad kind of agreement between the parties about that. There were certain disagreements about like the means of doing that, and there were certain disagreements about specific elements uh, therein, but broadly there was a lot of agreement about that. Um yeah, yeah. I, I suppose they were also trying to prevent um well, I guess revolution is the word <laughs> yeah, the was, people, uh... you know, the Soviet Union had become a superpower. <laughs> exactly. Um the CPGB was uh, it's high i think it reached its peak membership in the 50s you know so i imagine you know the labor and the conservative party would not benefit both parties would not benefit from that so yeah I exactly. it's, it's time to give some concessions uh, like just classic capital right <laughs> like just responding to uh you know the opportunity for social reorganization with some kind of reforms to uh to, to to quell kind of uh revolutionary spirit and yeah that is completely spot on i mean throughout the throughout the 1930s and particularly towards the tail end like the central concern of the british establishment is uh is communism it's not fascism it's it's very mm. much about communism and uh you know that's part of the reason why there was a sort of like you know a staggered start and a somewhat muted response initially towards like the rise of fascism in Europe was because mm. the, the fixation was very much on uh, on, on communism and mm. yeah I mean the, the the Labour Party being like you know uh, you know a 
you know, a parliamentary party who therefore also have some kind of stake in like the established order were also very conscientious of that. And therefore this reformism was the kind of uh, the, the, the approach that they ended up uh, uh, taking. But these reforms were, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to kind of denigrate the, the, the reformism here because these changes were like, you know, oh yeah, vast. And in terms of like the, in terms of the sort of kind of lineage of where we are now compared to where we are then, like I, I kind of see there, uh, the, a lot of our kind of attitudes and a, a lot of our institutions on a literal level, but also a lot of our attitudes towards what the purpose of education is, who should have access to education, um, you know, what education should do for you in your life, all these sorts of things. I, th- I think we inherit a lot of our attitudes from this immediate post-war period. Mm. Um, and yeah, that's kind of why I see it as being, you know, really important. And it also kind of has like a bit of this sort of like age of heroes kind of element to it. You know, you talked about Rob Butler, who is, you know, an incredibly impressive figure, but you also have, um, Ellen, you also have Ellen Wilkinson, who's like the Labour uh, Minister for Education, um, in, in the just immediately after the Second World War, when Labour came into power in '45, and she's also incredibly impressive. Somebody who was a beneficiary of the state education system herself, mm. from an yeah. upwardly mobile working class family in the north. Um, you know, really committed socialist and really committed to the cause of expanding, uh, you know, education for all and having other people benefit from the educational system in the way that she benefited from it. So you just have this kind of age of heroes type thing where you have all these really impressive kind of figures sort of almost working in concert with each other to advance the cause of equality in education. So like on the face of it, there's, 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 there's lots of kind of, you know, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of beauty there, essentially. So tell us a bit about what the 1944 Act introduced then and sort of what the context education was in at that point as it was introduced. Yeah, really, really happily, Phil. I think um, broadly the the state of affairs in the 30s is, you know, kids go to school, uh, you know, most kids go to school between the age of five and 14. um, But for most people, uh, 80% of young people don't advance uh, beyond uh, uh, don't go further in their education beyond the age of 14. In terms of where uh, most young people go to school, uh, most young people go to a school that's either run by their local council or they go to a school that's run by the by the church. So about 50% of schools in the country uh, in 1938, at least, but throughout most of the 30s, are run by the church, either the Church of England or the Catholic Church. And they're run on a kind of charitable basis in terms of young people having access to them without any cost. Um, there's also there's, there's there's just a very disorganized panoply of lots of different schools um, for um, both at primary level, but also for post 14 kind of secondary level as well. There's technical mm. schools and trade schools and all sorts of things. Um, and that's the sort of kind of milieu of like most people. But then you also have this kind of sort of layer like slathered on top, which is where middle, uh, middle and upper class children go. And they typically tend to attend. They typically tend to go to fee paying grammar schools or they tend to go to one of the great public schools like, uh, you know, Eton, Uppingham, Winchester College, these like, you know, sort of ancient, you know, stone institutions yeah. of uh, the southeast of England. Um, and so that's kind of the system as it was. It's sort of ticking away. There's, you know, certainly kind of concerns brewing about like, you know, both its efficiency and its fairness as a system. And those concerns are largely being cooked up in the sort of precursor to the kind of Department for Education as we have it today, which is the Board of Education. And, you know, there's certainly building political will like in the board for education and distributed throughout like a lot of decision makers to, to change things towards the end of the 1930s. And the 1944 Act is, is essentially the uh, outcome of a lot of thought that was happening about what needs to change. So it was cooked, it was uh, cooked up from these from these reports towards the end of the, the, the 1930s, but also over the course of the war, there was like, you know, a lot of conversation about, you know, what, what kind of education system are we going to have after the war? It's really important that we don't return to the state of affairs in the 1930s. And, you know, we can kind of like, you know, optimize our educational system to be able to, you know, be there's a huge economic element to it right to be like globally competitive so there's there's a lot of concern about these kinds of things and the 1944 education act as it sweeps in i'll talk a little bit about the uh kind of high level things that it introduces and you know say a little bit about sort of how it kind of came about um so a very high level free and compulsory secondary education for all with the school leaving age now going up to the age of 15 and that was later to be increased to, to 16 
You also have the establishment of what is, you know, popularly referred to as the tripartite system of education. Mm. Tribe because it has these three parts. So you have secondary moderns, you have grammar schools, and you have technical high schools. And um, each every young person in the country is going to be like canalized towards one of those three schools for their secondary education. And you're also going to have compulsory 15 to 18 education. That could be an academic education or it could be apprenticeships for those who aren't attending school. You also have uh, the introduction of free school meals for targeted pupils and also free milk, which um, uh, is still the case, I think, in, was, was the case in primary schools for a long time afterwards. Although famously, uh, Thatcher got rid of it, the milk yeah. Thatcher, uh, for secondary students. And at a kind of institutional level as well, you have the establishment of what is frequently referred to as the golden triangle relationship in the provision of education. So that is the dynamic between the state, the central organizing authority of the state, and then local education authorities, and then the teaching profession Mm. and that was a sort of um you know a dynamic that was pretty flexible and endured for quite a long time essentially it was only kind of really disrupted fairly recently in terms of the redistribution of um the kind of division of power um that triangle has been absolutely smashed hasn't it um so (laughs) like huge numbers of schools taken out of local authority control uh government has had pretty appalling relationships with the teaching profession for quite a long time now i mean like even going back to like new labor when they disaffiliated the union or forced the unions to choose to affiliate or not um exactly exactly um and yeah like it's uh, yeah i mean the 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 state is has much more authority and power now than it ever did uh which is strange because also there's been a a big compulsion towards decentralization at the same time so yeah yeah, that 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 that, that, that triangle despite having endured so much and having been generally flexible and generally like the kind of vision at this time was you know a a system of education for all that is centrally determined but locally delivered and but they're, they're being like really important like you know devolution of powers to the teaching profession so in this period of time like the the, the 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 job of the local authorities is they build the schools they staff the schools they maintain the school buildings that kind of thing the teaching mm. profession um basically have like total autonomy as to what they teach and also um teaching methods and that kind of thing and there's definitely like a bit of a boom around this time in like progressive kind of thinking in education and progressive yeah. approaches to education um but yeah that, that that division of power in terms of like the power of the profession versus the power of the local authority and the central government essentially sets like the, the higher level agenda in the way that we're talking about now in terms of like thinking about what the education system is for and how it's organized uh, um you know a sort of like uh, sort of superstructural level kind of thing so that, mm-hmm. that was a kind of arrangement and that, that was arrangement for a very long time and it's, it's still kind of you know you know molds a lot of our thinking about like how education should work now and has and, and certainly throughout a lot of the, the latter half of the 20th century was really central to like how people thought about the purpose of education how people thought um you know uh the, the what the division of labor people thought about education in terms of how it should work mm. you um Tell us a bit about the 11 plus then, because I know that's the sort of infamous uh, fallout <laughs> of this, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, another thing that as part of that tripartite system, actually, like a very central feature of it is um, the 11 plus. And um, I think like my personal interest here is that you you have this kind of, you know, this, this bit of legislation, this kind of vision and this vision kind of that it, that it projects, which is of a almost post-class kind of high social mobility, merit, merit, meritocratic society uh, in which, you know, e- equal opportunities to access education for all, you know, enormously compelling kind of idea. But at the same time, it has these features that are structurally built into it that essentially like work against that vision. Mm. Um, and one of the one of the main ones there is, is, is the 11 plus in educational selection. Equally, I, I'm somewhat sympathetic because I just think at the time, they're, they're, they're probably, they're, you know, this this was something that at the time I think it probably wasn't as obvious that at scale this would cause the kind of uh, this would this would actually only like you know entrench like previous inequalities rather than counteracting them. But nonetheless, they started out with this ambition that it would you know actually be really good for reducing inequality. And essentially, the way the eleven plus works is. Um, the, the starting point in the 1944 Education Act is that, you know, pupils fall into different types, like there are different types of children and the, those they can be kind of, uh, you can sort of like carve out, carve out the differences between those types based on different aptitudes, um, different interests, different abilities. 
And, you know, essentially the sort of typology there is that there are grammar school children and these grammar school children, they value learning for its own sake. Um, and then there are secondary technical pupils. Uh, and those are the ones who are going to go to the technical schools and they're interested in applied science or applied art. And then you've got the secondary modern uh, type of pupil who deals more easily with concrete things rather than ideas to use, the, to use their phraseology. Mm. And, um, you know, uh, the, the idea is that anybody, any people from any background could fall into one of these categories, right? Like you could have somebody who was, you know, from a working class background, who is a grammar school type people. You could have somebody who's from a middle-class background who is a secondary modern type people. The idea is that anybody could fall into them, but that there is very much a typology that children fall into. And that it's kind of, you know, a moral obligation of the state is to, you know, canalize that people towards the type of education that's most suitable to them based on this personality type so there's almost there's almost a kind of benevolent intention behind it but essentially the way that you sort them out into those different groups particularly um sorting out between secondary moderns and uh, grammar schools and I, I, th I think it's worth pointing out at this point that actually you know the tripartite system in practice ended up very, very much being a bipartite system in the mm. sense that like uh, technical <laughs> schools ne never really became much of a thing and it's sometimes you know, cited as being a major failure of this era because, you know, by consequence, like a lot of like really valuable technical skills in terms of improving like the country's overall industrial output um, were, were, weren't, weren't, weren't transmitted uh, like crucial times when they could have done. And that was like an oversight by the schools. But the, the central focus often kind of boiled down to being the difference between grammar schools and secondary moderns. And that's kind of what the 11 plus was. It was, a you know, an exam to select between, um, select whether you as an individual should go to um a secondary modern or go to a grammar school mm. essentially it was like a way of gatekeeping grammar schools to make sure only uh unfortunately air quotes don't communicate well on a podcast but <laughs> air, air quotes uh, uh it, was, it was to make sure that only smart children went to grammar schools and less smart or deals more readily with con with concrete things rather than ideas type children went to secondary moderns and so this was kind of like, like I mean, it's, it's worth emphasizing that like the 11 plus is still, I think, in some local educational authorities. Um, and, you know, even where it's not like a thing at the LEA level, you still have like, you know, selective schools in lots of areas. Like I like most people that I uh, went to primary school with did the uh, did, did a lot of like uh, effectively like an 11 plus like in, towards the uh, start of year six in primary school to decide whether they were going to go to one of the local grammar schools or not because because mm. I, I grew up in Birmingham where there's lots of them um, but yeah at the time this was you know this this was for all young people everybody would do this so towards the end of uh, the final year of primary education you would set an 11 plus exam administered through the local authority and that would decide whether you went to a grammar school or a secondary modern and this is like a really <laughs> like life-defining event in terms of like what it meant for your future you know you kind of you sometimes talk about how in life you have like moments that kind of divide like your life into like a before and after right like you have a before moment which was before that event happened and mm. you have an after event like this was this was essentially like you know a universal before and after thing for like all young people was that this was going to be like a major sort of transition in your in, in your your kind of you know in, in your, your educational experience yeah and I think it's something that still looms large in a lot of people's consciousness like if you talk to older people um, about their education the 11 plus is still a really significant event I can remember a conversation I had recently and it's not the only person I've had this conversation with um, with people who passed the 11 plus um, but were then unable to continue in schooling for like to pursue the sort of academic goals that they thought that was opening up to them because yeah, absolutely. Of, like social socioeconomic situation of their families so it's it's interesting with complete with like no acknowledgement of well of socioeconomic factors behind it it's just are you are you sort of academically inclined or are you not <laughs> here's a test to classify you for the rest of your life and even when you're 80 you'll be talking to phil about how you still identify by that <laughs> right <laughs> and um yeah like Mel melissa ben opens like one of her one of her more recent books i can't remember the name i'm really sorry melissa ben um but, but you are great um opens one of her recent books by doing like i, I think it's quite an informal survey that they run through um her her uh, her charity essentially mm. looking at attitudes towards um the 11 plus from people who took it and you know the 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 sort of open text um reports from people about like how they just felt like a total failure after the 11 after failing the 11 plus and how mm. like you know that kind of you know sort of steered their mindset towards thinking that they were like stupid for like 
pretty substantial periods of their time and made them like you know consequently less ambitious and all this sort of stuff like you know it's, it's a really significant like life event and like you know as as we as, as we know from as researchers in education like you know high stakes compulsory testing is really significant and we we already do it like particularly early in this country relative to a lot of other countries and you know here's here's the thing is that we used to do it like in a really consequential way for all young people at the age of 11 mm. and in terms of what you were saying about like loading the dice in favor of like middle class students um so the 11 plus went on to become more like what it looks like now for some selected grammar schools which is that you know it's kind of more of an iq test with like the sort of maths and like verbal and non-verbal and all of the associated problems with those (laughs) yeah right (laughs) (laughs) which i would love to do for another podcast i'm also really interested in that um but it ended up being more like an IQ test in like the 60s in response to a lot of negative responses to what it was like in the 40s and 50s, where it was like, you know, um, I mean, it was up to the local education authority that went into it. But there was there was a big like written component to it in terms of writing like essays and stuff. And the essays are like literally on like, like I've seen like essay questions from like um, 45 that are like, you know, describe the role of servants in, the, in, 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 in a household. And it's like, well... I mean, you know, there's, there's certainly a chance that, like, you know, uh, you you might be like the 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 child of like, you know, um, domestic laborers. In which case, that might be something that you you know about. But like, you know, proportionately, like, that's less likely to be the case. What's more likely to be the case is that if you're middle class and you read that and you have servants, you're like, yeah, I know how to answer this. <laughs> like, I I have lots of experience of being around uh, servants and like si- or, situating their role in the household and that kind of thing right or, or at least that you have the cultural capital to have uh, read about them or consume some kind of media in which uh so so like, i don't know reading jane eyre for example <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah because another another set of questions that i've seen were basically just about um uh comparing and talking about different classical composers which again like is you know obviously something that you probably had more access to if you're from a middle-class background and Mm. culturally your uh class like values those particular artistic outputs as opposed to somebody who's from a working class background who which has its own kind of artistic outputs their values right like Mm. so yeah i mean the the, the dice were very much loaded in terms of the content of these exams already yeah and in terms of comparing it to like now um there was also pretty much like like you know like uh passing the 11 plus or passing selective um, grammar school exams is just like a huge industry like in this country right like you mm. just have like loads of private tutoring like like yeah I, I went to a, I went to like a selective um, a selective school and I, I like you know uh, I, you know I went to like you know uh, a tutor like every week or so and so my sister also went to a selective school and that's a huge industry is, is doing that kind of selection a lot of this however was clustered within schools so what schools primary schools would do is that they would essentially spend a lot of the final year of primary school at school elementary school at the time but we'll call it primary for, the, for this purpose um spend a lot of that time you know streaming students based on ability into target classes based on their probability of passing the 11 plus and also you know it was very much like teaching to the test right like it was just mm. the whole kind of final year of primary school was oriented around teaching to uh, teaching to that particular test rather than you know learning in a kind of broad and balanced way mm. um and equally you know there was also lots of extra tutoring and that kind of thing and you know very much very much then as as now you have like upwardly mobile upwardly mobile like middle class parents who were also able to kind of you know ensure that their child had access to like extra support to make sure they were in a high, a stronger position to pass that 11 plus um and just to kind of like stick with that theme if that's right so like about these sorts of um you know upwardly mobile middle class families and as we return to the issue of class you also just have this vexed issue of private schools like well yeah i was gonna say right yeah like so you had this sort of i think uh poorly executed but fundamentally i guess utopian idea of sorting kids by their sort of academic uh tendencies rather than rather than by their class but then you know that only applied to people who couldn't afford private schools and if you could then you could just sort of choose to completely opt out of that system and uh, enjoy a nice bit of social closure <laughs> so yeah tell us a bit about private schools then in that in that context that is that is so spot on because yeah it, it's, it's possibly one of the most baffling things about the 1944 education act is you know the sort of disjuncture between this enormously 
egalitarian vision and the fact that it almost you know in, in some in some respects for the the, the most well-off in society it kind of leaves everything as it is um so the night the act itself the night before act doesn't doesn't have very much to say about private schooling um, and equally, you know, when the Labour government came in in 1945 in a massive landslide, they also didn't have much to say about it. So it's not just the act. It's also the Labour government as they came mm. in. They, they, were, they were pretty quiet about private schools. Um, and this is like the context was that towards the end of the 30s, like, you know, there were, you know, quite visible and, you know, uh, vicious campaigns against private schools as, you know, these you know these these great enemies of like social progress uh, like you know while while the poor starve like you know uh you know uh, people are benefiting from these enormous uh, enormously like powerful educations while while young people live in like you know destitution and poverty mm. and like you know by consequence private schools were you know sort of keeping their head down a lot towards like the end of the phase and this is also the case throughout like a lot of the 40s as well in response to that partly because they just didn't want to kind of you know put their head above the parapet and possibly uh, possibly lose out on the fact that they were generally being ignored and able to do as they wanted. Mm. I think the kind of, the one kind of thing is that the Board of Education does suggest that 25% of all private schools should, sorry, private schools should reserve 25% of all their places for uh, primary school pupils from the local area who will go there on like a grant aided place they'll be funded by the local education authority but in practice that basically like doesn't really happen like it does happen in some places and you know there are lots of great kind of you know narratives of people who benefited from that and were able to get great education blah blah, blah. but like you know overall at like a population level this isn't something that really happens mm. well i mean well, that still completely ignores the social context as well i mean can you imagine being the quote unquote poor kid <laughs> right. in the uh, community of people who can afford private schools especially in the 40s um, yeah god <laughs> like, regardless of how well you do academically i think i think there's a fundamental uh there's, there's a sort of ignoring of uh, of culture is. there isn't there yeah, in um, terms of just breezing past what the fundamental issue is, like, yeah. exactly. Leads me on quite nicely to your second piece, actually, which is about how social mobility and education, how the relationship between social mobility and education has uh, developed or not developed over the last, um, o- over the sort of second half of the 20th century. So why don't you give us a quick overview of that? Yeah, absolutely, Phil. So this book is called Social Mobility in Education in Britain, Research, Politics and Policy. And this particular chapter I'm going to look at is called Education and Social Mobility, the OED Triangle. Um, Overview of the book, uh, written by two quantitative sociologists at Oxford who've done extensive research into social mobility in the country in general, and particularly its overlap with education. the UK itself has like this really distinguished history of like quantitative sociological research, especially in relation to social mobility, kind of pioneered a lot of the data collection methods um, that have been used, that are used throughout the world to kind of like track and study social mobility. Um, I think there was a real concerted interest in understanding social mobility in this country as well from an academic perspective throughout a lot of the latter half of the 20th century as well, particularly from this kind of, you know, liberal social sciences perspective. And the book draws on a really wide range of data. the book is very it's, it's a very quantitative book like and um i'm not i'm, I'm going to try to avoid going to too many of the quantitative details so mm. i just don't think they're very interesting on like yeah. a podcast but like if you uh if, if if you're like really geeky like me and phil then you you will find a lot of the kind of explanations of how they kind of you know uh cut and manage like a lot of the data really interesting um, they do this with a lot of different data sources, but the very centre, I guess, um, of this, uh, the, the really central bit of data at the heart of all this is, uh, or, or rather, the uh, British birth cohort studies, which, you know, as I was saying earlier, were part of this kind of really pioneering lineage of quantitative sociology in this country. There's one done in 1946, there's one done in 1958, and there's one done in 1970. There's also one done in the year 2000, but they don't really touch on that very much at all. Mm. And essentially what these studies were, were they just got samples of individuals who were born at the same time, (laughs) within the same year, and then it followed them throughout their lives um, with interviews at regular intervals, along with interviews with people around them, so parents, teachers, and other selected individuals based on their research questions at any given time. And then some of that data has been, some of that interview data has been coded and turned into like quant stuff, which is what they do a lot of the analysis with here. But also you have like this kind of corresponding set of like really rich detailed interviews. And because of the kind of longitudinal focus there, like massively longitudinal focus there, you just have these like 
um, really rich case studies in you know uh, experiences of making way through turbulent social changes and social mobility coming into the uh, going through education coming to the labor market and all that sort of stuff so really really powerful like mm. data sets that are still drawn on today in a lot of quantitative sociological research yeah sorry so just just to confirm the, the newest cohort study they used was 78 was it uh, yeah, so 1970 is the most yeah. recent one that they've used. Oh, see, that would be absolutely fascinating to extend now because I mean, 1970, did you say? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, Christ, yeah. So that is really not exactly at the dawn, but certainly before the complete dominance of neoliberalism as a sort yeah. of political <laughs> mode. So it would be, I think it would be absolutely fascinating to repeat this study now. <laughs> um, and so particularly the, like the most noticeable one is in the 1958 one, mm-hmm. which um, is basically the people who are in the 1958 study, they're essentially coming into the labor market, like just as Thatcherism is becoming a thing. So, you know, at the sort of like, real kind of you know opening volley of like neoliberalism like in this country i mean obviously there were lots of trends towards neoliberalism before that but Mm. you know probably one of the most kind of like like explicit phase transitions there and it's just really it's just really noticeable in the data that like they have like such worse like economic prospects yeah as a consequence of deunionization they have like way lower pay like it's just really obvious that there's like a real transition there and this definitely comes up in the data for in this particular chapter where they talk about um the relationship between education and social mobility um so the kind of general question running throughout this book and particularly in this chapter is, you know, in politics, policy and academia, you know, there's generally been this sense that like education is going to be like the great powerhouse of social change in terms of driving, in terms of, you know, totally renovating the country, turning it from like, you know, an arcane aristocracy, as I said earlier on, to being this kind of liberal, democratic, meritocratic, you know, modern nation. And, you know, the question is, like, why do people think education is going to be the central kind of a central play a central role in that? And then the other question is, like, has education played a central role in that? Mm. And that's that's kind of like the first part of this book is very much looking at social mobility in general within this country. And then the, the latter half of the book is mainly looking at education's relationship to that. Um, and, yeah, I think a really powerful conceptual tool they have in here for how to think about the relationship between social mobility and education is called uh, the OED triangle. Um, would you uh, would you be happy for me to talk a little bit more about that, Phil? Yeah, yeah. Tell us about the model. Yeah. So yeah, I I hope this translates well over a podcast because like visually it just works really well. But I think if you kind of the, the OED triangle is a way of representing like what the relationship is between education and social mobility, and what needs to be the case for education to be this kind of great engine of social mobility and social transformation so if you kind of if you close your eyes (laughs) and you imagine a triangle and then on each of those three each of the three points on a triangle i'm going to assign it a letter so on one of the one of the points i'm going to assign it the letter o on another i'm going to assign the letter e then another point i'm going to assign the letter d and each of those letters stands for something. So the O stands for social origins. So that's the class that you as an individual are born into. The E stands for education. And it's about the educational experience and educational attainment that you achieve um, over the course of your life. And then the D stands for social destination. So that's the kind of class or the profession that you end up in as an adult overall or at the particular time of measurement. And then if you think about the, the lines that are connecting O, E and D, those lines can either be like strong or they can be weak. So you could have a kind of strong connection between O and E. And that would, for example, mean that there's like a strong relationship between your social origins and the education that you're able to access. Um, equally, that could be a weak line. Um, also, you can imagine that there could be a strong line between O and D. So that would mean that there's a strong relationship between your social origins and your social destination. Does that kind of make sense for us? A sort of like yeah, framework to kind of like visualize uh, how this would work. So the idea is that you've got your OED triangle. Yeah. So I guess in an ideal world that we'd want uh, we'd want there to be a fairly strong link between. Well, I say in an ideal world, in an ideal. <laughs> Uh, sort of liberal democracy, meritocratic society, then we would want a strong link between E and D and then weak links between O and E and O and D. So your origins exactly. don't have much of a 
don't impinge much on your education experience or your social destination, but your education experience is what determines your destination in the sort of ideal meritocratic model. So is that fair to say? That is exactly spot on. Yeah. So the idea, exactly as you say, the idea is to have like a strong connection between how you do your educational uh, attainment and your social destination, but your social origins should have very little do, to do with the, the quality of education they were able to access and also very little to do with the social destination that you end up in. And if that kind of spec is met, then you would say that like, you know, education is um, providing the driving force between social mobility, high, high rates of social mobility, high levels of velocity of social mobility within a uh, particular society. And the general view was that, um, throughout a lot of the post-war period um, was that this is just something that was just going to happen because you know you have a you know a much more liberalized economy and a liberalized economy is just going to sort for a system of maximal efficiency and it would be it would be far too inefficient to have a socially immobile system because you would have loads of wastage of talent you'd have lots of lost opportunities you would have lots of kind of um, underdevelopment in the economy and so, you know, there is just a kind of built-in logic to how liberal societies work that they yeah. are going to produce a system of maximal social mobility. That, that was that was the deal. To a free market, isn't it? Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's the exactly. thing is, like, you know, it's it's horrible that we have, uh, you, you know, such uh, such inequality in our society. But from the perspective of the people at the top, it's very efficient because they've got a group of people that they can easily exploit for no money. So. <laughs> So, exactly yeah, it's really interesting that it's got that kind of ideology baked into this conception of it yeah so what, what's what's the view then what does it look like now uh so yeah that and that, that that's essentially what the uh chapter goes on to talk about so you start off by kind of like spelling out this kind of you know model and then it's like you know has this has this model but with particularly with a historical focus over the course of the 20th century up to now has there been has the spec been realized has it been brought into being mm. you know is it the case that you know O, o has very little to do with E and D and E and D have a lot to do with each other. And their finding, like a very, you know, summary kind of high level is that like very little has changed, if anything at all, mm. um, over the course of the 20th century. Like the relationship between class origins and your social origin, sorry, and your kind of social destination is still as strong as it was. And the relationship between um, your uh, social origin and your educational attainment is still quite strong. What has weakened in some respects is your relationship between um, your educational attainment and your social destinations. And that's kind of like what they take as being the really interesting question. Is yeah. why, why is that relationship weak? So essentially, they've failed. <laughs> the original vision. So yeah, O and D and O and E are much stronger, and E and D is much weaker. So yeah, I mean, they, they do never by your class origins, <laughs> and less so by how hard you work in education. Uh, yeah, pretty pretty much. I mean, they do, they do they do they do caveat this by saying that you know the relationship between class origins and educational attainment has narrowed, but they also caveat that caveat by saying it's narrowed very slightly, and also yeah. only at. Um, at particular educational levels, particularly towards the uh, the, the bottom end of educate levels of education. Well, yeah, so, I mean, and fundamentally, you know, if your goal is to increase social mobility, then that's rather immaterial. If if the link between O and D has got stronger, and the link between E and D, exactly, got, it doesn't matter if you have a nicer education experience. <laughs> fundamentally, it hasn't done the uh, what their stated goal of uh, making people socially mobile. Exactly. So, yeah, what are some of the reasons they give for that? So. Um, their, I guess their primary kind of hypothesis here is related to credential inflation. Um, this is this is probably a familiar concept for a lot of people, if not by that name, because it's been you know talked about a lot in the last year in, in terms of grade inflation and that kind of thing, mm. uh, with the uh, the changes to exam procedures this year and last year. And essentially, the idea here uh, for credential inflation is, you know, the idea of the OED triangle is that you know. Um, young people come out with like an education and that's going to make them like you know more suitable to be employed at you know whatever level of um you know in the professional managerial class or at whatever level in the labor market um but what that model mistakes is that the labor market is competitive so qualifications only have value insofar as they give you like a competitive edge so if the system is doing what it was intended to do and still does which is giving everyone like an equal level of qualification um, at a kind of like mandatory level, then that's that, that it's, it's not necessarily giving people a competitive edge, right? So 
that's that's very visible like particularly now in um, current labor trends yeah well i mean it also puts pressure on everyone who doesn't have those qualifications as well you know if 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 you talk about for example the huge increase of people with undergraduate degrees hmm. think about the pressure that that puts on people who don't have those qualifications you know there's not really a sense of being able to work your way up within a company anymore particularly as people stay in jobs for less time than they have done it's previously just, it's uh, just so, so much kind of like just totally pointless gatekeeping as well with loads of these things right like so what they try to do to kind of get behind get underneath the skin of this credential inflation a little bit more so is they um they they they, they highlight that one of the kind of oversights and a lot of the research has been that um they like researchers have generally tend to treat education as like this kind of like absolute good Mm. and treat its sort of value as you know in, in an absolute sense and you know there's there's definitely like a level of description in which that's obviously true like education is an absolute good blah, blah blah but for the sort of like operationalized purposes of this research like it's it can be it's probably more useful to think of it as a as a, as a relational good like as a relative good mm. in that it's got some positional value based on where it puts you relative to the rest of the uh the, the labor force right like so you know having a master's <laughs> i mean not that I think this, but in principle, like having a master's puts you positionally in a better position to be employed than um, other people in the labor market who don't have a master's, for example, Um, or, you know, having an undergraduate degree, just as you said, Phil, puts you in a better position than those who don't. So their their kind of aim is to sort of like, you know, recast the idea of like um, educational attainment through this kind of relational and relative lens rather than through this absolute lens. So they do this by taking the cohort studies, um the 1946 1958 and 1970 cohort studies and um for each of these studies essentially what they do is they comb through them and they kind of develop a new kind of um way of coding each uh, level of educational attainment within that cohort based on um the relative proportion of that cohort who hold that particular level of attainment mm. so say for example in the 1946 cohort um you know, a smaller proportion of the participants have a university qualification compared to the 1958 cohort. So by consequence, the relative value of the university qualification is much higher in the 1946 cohort than it is in the, 1950, uh, in the 1958 cohort. Mm-hmm. And similar for, 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 for GCEs as well, like as, as they were called at the time. So they essentially like recast all of this stuff to extract its relative value as opposed to its absolute value in each kind of era. And then they calculate, they use some calculations to estimate the relative value of a qualification in each of that period based on that. And then what they find, um, doing this kind of comparative analysis between the different cohort studies is that there's a really clear tendency for the overall level of qualifications over the cohorts to increase with time. Mm -hmm. So the 1958 cohort have higher average level of educational attainment in absolute terms than the 1946 cohort. So like I was just saying, the number of um, the, the proportion who have a, uh, a a university level degree in the 1958 cohort is greater than in the 1946 cohort. So, mm. at a sort of like you know, um, absolute level, there's definitely increases improvements in educational attainment with every successive cohort. But at a relative level, um, based on like the the proportion of the cohort who actually hold a qualification. Um, that largely stays the same, <laughs> basically, between the 1946 cohort, between the 1958 cohort, between the 1970 cohort. Um, when you understand qualifications as having relative value, the relative value of each of each individual's education largely stays the same. So, um, yeah, well, I think that, that throws up something really interesting about the nature of qualifications, doesn't it? And I know that uh, this isn't necessarily the most popular view in the world, um, having argued about this in the team a few times. <laughs> um, but I think for me, it really highlights that qualifications are what we essentially have is qualifications as some kind of like sign currency. So mm-hmm. the ability to, to say that I have a degree means a lot more than whatever my degree was in or how well I did in it especially if you went to for example like well I went to Cambridge and I you know I can't ignore the fact that that will have opened more doors for me than other people um, throughout my life because I have a more valuable sign that I can exchange <laughs> yeah absolutely and that, yeah yeah, yeah you know, absolutely you know, people who did degrees before haven't found them to be the content of the degree you know largely hasn't changed but the value of it has so 
it's it's essentially it's a bit like uh like Deutschmarks after World War One. If everyone has a degree, <laughs> then you know it's worth nothing. But yeah, that that is exactly it. And that, that is a really, really good way of putting it, Phil, in terms of like how you know these things are like you know currency is a great comparison right like they are necessarily only like valuable in you know a certain framework and they're Mm. only valuable like in relation to other elements of that framework right Mm. like it's kind of it's yeah i suppose it's difficult because in a sense like you can kind of see like why this was all like quite predictable in a sense but also you can kind of see why um and and therefore like why there should have been a different approach towards like how to improve social mobility within a society like you can't just do it through education Mm. and through the educational system um but equally you can sort of see that like you know this was kind of like a well-meaning uh experiment it's just that one that didn't you know necessarily improve things for a lot of people just to round off on this paper like they do sort of you know this is this is not a uh this, this is not a kind of chapter that does a huge amount of like you know um kind of uh, this doesn't put a huge amount of effort into trying to under, understand and unpack mechanism, but what they, because they, you know, say themselves that this is probably something that requires further research, but mm-hmm. from their perspective, like, yeah, essentially they use this great phrase, which is called the commodification of opportunity. Yeah. Which is to say that, you know, um, you know, employers, the, the way employers think about qualifications is that they see them as these sorts of kind of, you know, these, these like biomarkers of ability and they use them to essentially just sort very quickly through potential hires. Mm. Um, and the more you have them, stronger indication of a certain desirable trait, blah, blah, blah. Um, but the response from parents and their children is to kind of align themselves with that, which is to think like, okay, so the better the qualifications and the more qualifications you, you, you have, like, um, the more advantaged you are going into the labor market and therefore they use their superior resources from the fact that they generally have a lot more money than those of low socioeconomic status to you know um give their kids a competitive edge and therefore it's become this kind of framework for how we think and you know as we're going to say talk about social mobility opportunity and social advancement Mm. which leads us very nicely on (laughs) to your third piece um (laughs) deflection privilege class identity intergenerational self uh which you said was about how people perceive themselves how people perceive or talk about rather their own class background i just want to say straight away that this is this is a great paper like it is a um interview study uh, it, it's 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 sort of a different take. We, we've been talking about the sort of structures and how they haven't changed very much, but I think this is really interesting because it's talking about how, you know, um, the way we talk about those structures and the way we think about them has, in some respects, um, become a certain way. If it, even if that doesn't necessarily align with like <clears throat> how those structures actually themselves work, I think like it's it's tricky because a lot of the best papers like that you ever read like have absolutely nothing to do <laughs> with your own experience mm. and that's actually one of the things that's great about them is they introduce you to like very very new uh novel insights into like how to think about things that have very little to do with you but also equally like some of the best papers like tell you lots of stuff about yourself and i definitely you know uh <laughs> there, there there is a lot in this paper that made me think like a lot about like myself and a lot about how I narrate and how I think about like my own kind of origin story mm-hmm. and like there are things that like the people interviewed and it said that like you know I, I've not said ad verbatim but I've pretty much said to, to other people or I've said to myself or I'm thinking about like my own kind of you know descent in this world and um yeah I mean I just I just thought it was great uh for having a, some of that reflected back to me and prompting a lot of like self-reflection about my own life so yeah I think those are the things that I really like about it and uh, that's a bit of an overview of like you know what the paper is ultimately about mm-hmm. um so what do we find so yeah just just to give you a sense of so the, the paper has a really great lit review at the very beginning which I think has got some really interesting findings um about how at a very general level people in the UK talk about class compared to other countries um this sort of like initial lit review leans very heavily on the 2016 British social attitudes survey um and the really interesting thing is that in contrast to a lot of other countries a lot of other you know um industrialized rich developed countries um in the UK people have a tendency to over identify as working class which basically means that people have a a strong a stronger tendency to identify as working class even though if you look at their kind of like class position 
and their class origin objectively they are not working class <laughs> like um so uh from that 2016 survey i was just talking about uh 47 of those who are in middle class professional managerial occupations identify as working class and of those 47 percent, 24 percent aren't even from like a working class background they're from a professional and managerial background mm. in terms of what their parents did but they still identify as working class and this is in really stark contrast as i say to a lot of other countries where you know in a lot of the rest of western europe and in um, america you know you have you you have a the, the opposite effect in a sense which is that people over identify as being middle class so lots of people who are in you know uh working class professions based on the kind of this typology of class identify as being middle class and so there's this kind of peculiarly british phenomena where we over identify as working class and they explore a few reasons for why at a sort of you know general level they think this might be the case um one is the kind of positional thing that we've been talking about generally over the course of um, the course of our conversation, Phil, which is that, you know, people sort of see their own life and they, they kind of see like the immediate world around them. And they're just like, oh, like, this is just normal. And like describing yourself as like working class seems like a really good way of just saying like, I'm normal, basically. Mm. And in terms of the positional thing, like it's by... Uh, as, as kind of came out again in a lot of these interviews, like a lot of it is by like, you know, describing yourself as something to distinguish yourself from being something else. So I think what this general kind of lit review sets the stage for is the, the kind of theory that, that undergirds a lot of this paper, which is that um, the reason we tend to over-identify as, as, as a nation, as working class, is, is, is about this kind of storytelling. It's about the, the, one of the, the kind of real myths that we live by in our culture even though it's not you know socially or economically realized when the real myth that we live by is that we live in a meritocratic culture and by consequence we kind of compress and distort like all of our stories to fit into that mer meritocratic narrative and so that means that that compels you as someone even if you're from a privileged background to downplay deflect distance yourself from that unfair privilege and to try and recast your story as being like a an origin story of you know uh, of, merit of, of meritocracy of you know starting from the bottom now we're here as they say mm. um and and also this this paper touches on like another potential interesting hypothesis um which will become clearer as i talk a little bit more about the paper um but yeah just to say a little bit about like the methods that they used so um they interviewed 175 uh, people working for different workplaces and they selected these workplaces to kind of capture a very capture a variety of, um, of different workplaces in terms of class composition and different professions and that kind of thing. So you have a national television broadcaster, a large multinational accountancy firm, an architecture practice, and they also talk to some self-employed actors as well. Um, and the aim is really to, um, the, the, the focus of this paper is zooming in on those um, in these organizations who identified as um, working class, despite them currently being in a, you know, thoroughly middle-class profession. Mm -hmm. And it zooms in even deeper to be about those who are identified as working class, even though they're in a middle-class profession, and also have, um, you know, a middle-class heritage in terms of the, the jobs that their, that their parents did. And it's just absolutely fascinating what people said and the stuff that people talked about is just, I don't know, like I say, it, it just gave me loads to think about in terms of how I like kind of think about my own kind of origin story. Mm -hmm. And the, the most striking thing right is like so they start off each of these interviews by saying two simple questions right what did your parents do for a living when you were growing up and um do you think of yourself as coming from a particular social class uh, and most people who you know who most people who had correctly identified like the class that they're in the class that they come from you know you know bang bang two really simple like neat and tidy answers to those uh to, to those questions mm. but uh, for the people who are from a middle class background but who style themselves as being from a working class background they gave these like really long truncated like meandering answers which were you know as, as they describe it like basically all over the place like and you know often sidestepping the question and just putting in loads and loads of caveats to explain their answer oh okay yeah often just going like back beyond their parents to talk about their grandparents and apparently in some cases their grandparents so from the from just from the off like you just have like a real disparity in like how convoluted answers are to this like otherwise you know in some respects like fairly simple almost closed question sorry um, i think that's taken a while to sink in their great grandparents 
yeah <laughs> yes yeah, some people definitely drew on their great grandparents yeah and i think i've got i've got a couple of like readings from it so these little vignettes i think that in one of them um they they, they do talk about their great grandparents but just to kind of give you an example of the sort of you know kind of stumbling around the question uh, i'm going to read you um a little bit from what one of the interviewees said so <clears throat> okay well i consider my background to be a working class one even though i don't sound like that my parents, their parents were all very much like cleaners, taxi drivers, painters and decorators. And then in my parents' generation, my mum is a hairdresser, but she was of the Thatcher world and was encouraged by her parents to own her own salon and an incredibly hardworking family. The whole family are really like massively, you know, because my parents, they owned a hotel. I'm sorry, my grandparents, they owned a hotel. They did everything themselves. They had no staff. They did all the cleaning, all the cooking, all the entertaining, all the decorating, and they all did it really well. So you have this person who's talking about like, you know, their parents being like small business owners um, and also their grandparents. Their grandparents. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, incredible. Big... You know, started off with like my parents and their parents were cleaners and taxi drivers, but then also my parents owned a salon. And yeah. My parents owned a hotel. Like that's that is fascinating. And like yeah. all the caveats and the sort of meandering uh, pace of that. Um, there's sort of a lot of justification, isn't there? I think there's uh, absolutely like, as you as you know, it's like there's the people need feel the need to distance themselves from privilege because of the sort of meritocratic mythos that we maintain you know because you're supposed to do well if you work hard so if you and that, well without working hard if you've got if you're privileged then you haven't had to work hard to earn your privilege exactly and like that's a kind of recurring theme in a lot of these interviews is people talking about the fact that they had all these privileges but they're just emphasizing like really driving home the point that like but my parents worked really hard. Oh, yeah. my grandparents worked really hard. So you have this, uh, in, like another interviewee um, who, uh, you know, is, I think, worked in TV. Yeah, it was, it was from the, t for, it was from the, uh, the TV workplace. Uh, and then just talks about having gone to private school on careful savings made by her grandparents, had yeah. a deposit to buy a flat based on advance of a modest parental inheritance that her parents worked really hard to provide her with. And set her up to be able to work in tv based on her parents making huge sacrifices include giving up including giving up several holidays so you're talking about this this kind of suite of privilege but at every opportunity you're emphasizing the fact that like it was earned through hard work like oh, there were like sacrifices there were justifications for it and you know incredible well, as well that it's entirely um all of the justification is focused on money as well you know right. so, uh, i mean apart let, let's just sort of leave aside a deposit to buy a flat based on an advance of a modest parental inheritance <laughs> i mean that is quite incredible but um the the one about getting set up in tv is really interesting to me because i think you know uh her parents helped her to get set up in the tv industry based on them giving up several holidays there's sort of no there's not a clear link there to me and <laughs> right like if they helped her to get set up in the tv industry then presumably it's because they had contacts exactly exactly and it's um and the, the, the crucial thing is that like so the, so the hard work thing is, is is almost certainly true right like like people mm. often do work really hard um but the fact like that's almost kind of not relevant <laughs> like it's you know in terms of like saying like what class you came from like you know people of all classes work really hard and also there are people of all classes who may not work so hard like you know it's not it doesn't, it doesn't feel particularly relevant to the question of like your class origin but this is, seems to be like a really important point mm. um that you know this idea that like you're working class because you work hard sort of thing and the middle class just coast away or whatever the kind of embedded kind of implicit claim is there mm. um and that's a really kind of crucial thing that kind of recurs over and over what's what's the sort of effect of this then so i think one of the things is that like a re another really key thing which i think is really important for like how we how people end up thinking about these issues in, in class and that kind of thing is that there was this real like enduring thing in like a lot of the interviewees which is that they talked a lot about having kind of made their own way and really struggled and really scrapped it out to be like where they are currently and you know i, I don't want to deny that those things are probably true but also there was like you know a routine ignorance of the fact that they had also been enormous beneficiaries like of privilege mm. and like they're a kind of real core feature of like a lot of these like narratives of their origin stories like 
you know, really downplayed that privilege. And, you know, there was a lot of justifying of it, but there was also a lot of kind of trying to tidy it away. So it wasn't really much of a thing. And, you know, the consequence is that, you know, I mean, it's, it's a cliche to talk about like checking one's own privilege and whatever, but like the consequence is that like people often didn't really understand like the enormous role that like their social, cultural and economic context had played in where they were able to, you know, get to eventually in society. And we can appreciate the downstream consequence of that, right? Which is like, you know, you, you have like what's called like the fundamental attribution error in psychology, which is that people generally tend to see like their own uh, achievements as being like the consequence of like, you know, kind of traits and characteristics um, that they have inherently that make them sort of superior. And also the fact that they worked really hard. And then they see like any of the kind of achievements of others as being like, you know, because of like good, good fortune and social context and that kind of thing. Um, and the result is that you have this incredibly skewed attitude towards like achievement, which is that, you know, uh, you, you basically think that you've done everything yourself and therefore others should be able to do everything themselves when actually you've only been able to get where you are because of, you know, having all these kinds of privileges. And if you want other people to be able to do as well as you, then you need to extend those privileges to them. Right. And because the attitude runs in the opposite direction you have this kind of you have this kind of perspective which is that privileges shouldn't be extended to people like entitlement shouldn't be extended to people because mm -hmm. they should just do what you did which was have one of these incredibly convoluted origin stories <laughs> in, which you, uh, <laughs> yeah. in which in which you justify like every privilege you've had as being like you know the, uh, the the consequence of hard work so yeah you can kind of see how this potentially um you know that this this perspective infects and you know steers are like a lot of our like political thinking mm. i think there's the, the the researchers here are really are really fair and like i think one of the things they really they leave open towards the end is that um you know also there might be something something really interesting about identity here which is about you know sort of transgenerational identity and how you know people construct a, a, a vision of themselves that isn't just about them and their parents it also mm -hmm. goes back like a little bit further um, and, you know, I think they're open to the idea that's something that might require more research, but I think over, overwhelmingly, you know, the, the real central thing is like a sort of a, a kind of a, a blindness to economic privilege as they describe it, you know, mm. and by consequence, you know, a inability to appreciate that others people may not be able to get to the same position as you because they don't have access to that same privilege. So, mm. yeah, I think and we can, you know, we can certainly see how that kind of, you know, has implications for our current political culture. Yeah. Well, and our political culture of the last uh, many decades. I mean, we yeah, talked a exactly. lot about, uh, about people seeing education as the pure driver of social mobility whilst ignoring all of the uh, uh, material. Uh, exactly. Conditions. Exactly. It's absolutely yeah. spot on. Absolutely Brilliant. Spot on. Well, thank you so much for that, Baz. That was absolutely fascinating set of papers. I really enjoy talking to you about that. And um, yeah, I hope to have you back on the podcast soon. Thanks so much, Phil. Absolute uh, pleasure and privilege. And uh, yeah, can't wait to be back on another time. Alright, cheers. <laughs> we love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. 1. Subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. 2. Share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. 3. Review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.